You ready for the word tonight? I know we're going to have to try it again. You ready for the word tonight? Man, I don't know how you couldn't be after that worship set. Let's meet up in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Out of the four gospel accounts that we have in Scripture, I've always kind of favored personally reading Luke's account. We know that he was a doctor, and as such, he was a very detail-oriented individual, and that, I feel, is reflected in how he wrote. Very detailed, very much more so than his companions. And so we find a lot more detail in Luke's gospel account, typically, than we find in all the other ones. So if you're someone who likes having all the deets, then Luke is your guy, if you want the fullness of the account. As we get to the text that I feel like God has laid out for us tonight, Jesus has just come off of the side of the mountain where he had delivered what we would come to know as his Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, whichever one of those you're more familiar with hearing. Jesus has just come down from delivering that message, and he's entering into the city of Capernaum when something worth writing down happens. And that's what we're going to pick up in God's Word in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It reads, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus... They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's talk about what I'm going to label as a moment of marvel tonight. I want to talk about a moment of marvel. Find three people around you and tell them, wow, 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 you look good tonight. Wow, your breath is stinking. Wow, I heard you singing during worship. Let's have a moment of marvel tonight. To be honest with you, I'm really not sure why God settled my heart on this passage. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel moving forward the rest of the night. But if I could just have a candid moment, I would honestly say, I don't know why God settled me on this passage in preparation for this night. Usually it's easy for me to see purpose. Usually it's easy for me to see practicality or application for your lives when he walks me through a specific text. I never could get that kind of comfort with this passage, but I felt certain that it was the one that God had settled my heart Upon So over the past couple of days, me and the Lord wrestled over this a little bit because, you know, I'm like, God, I need an outline. Like, I need at, like, at least three or four points at least 
you know, to go along with the message. If it's going to be a good Baptist message, we've got to have it like three or four points, you know, to go along with it. So, you know, we got we got to get all this stuff together. Do you know how this works, God? Like, I've got a template laid out that we need to populate and fill. And if we don't do that, then I don't know how in the world I'm going to get up and preach to these students and tell them that I've got a word because, you know, I've got things the way I like them to be done. And I've got a routine I like to be in, and you're not meeting me in my routine, and it's kind of caused me a little bit of anxiety. So me and God wrestled a little bit over the past couple of days over this passage, and after a couple of rounds of back and forth, he told me, I'll tell you what, how about you just share it, and I'll show it. So I'm going to share it, and I'm praying that you're going to see it. As a matter of fact, I'm trusting you're going to see it, because I know that as his word goes forth, it will not return void. So if we're willing tonight, as he shares it through me, he will show it to us. You believe that? So here we go. Jesus enters into the city where he finds a Roman centurion who we're told had a sick servant. Now, in case you don't know what a centurion is, a centurion was an officer in the Roman guard who was charged over 100 soldiers, hence the name of centurion. And so that was his role. That was the purpose that he fulfilled. He was an officer in the Roman army, and he oversaw 100 men kind of in his company. We're told that when he found out Jesus was in town, he called the Jewish leaders together, and he asked them if they would go to Jesus on his behalf to plead with them to come and heal his servant. So let's talk about that servant just for a moment. We don't know much about this person specifically, other than the fact that the text tells us that this servant was highly valued to the centurion. So this person, whoever it was, and now in the original language, servant here is translated as a bond servant, like a, like a slave, somebody that was owned by the centurion, somebody who would have worked underneath his authority, somebody that would have bent to his will or his command, whatever he desired for them to do. So we have like an actual slave on our hands here. But the centurion doesn't speak to this servant as such. This person was highly valued to him. This wasn't just some random slave that the centurion owned that he looked at as nothing more than just a commodity. This was somebody that he loved. This was somebody that he cared about. This is somebody that he obviously had a very close and deep relationship with. Now listen to me. We all have people in our lives that we highly value. We all have people in our lives that we love deeply. We all have people in our lives that we care a whole lot about. And when given the opportunity, I pray that we'll be just as quick to direct them towards Jesus in their time of need as this centurion was for his servant in their need. And so he hears that Jesus is in town. And he asks if some of the Jewish leaders would go and beg and plead with Jesus to come and heal his sick servant. So they go and they find Jesus and they plead with him to come and heal this servant of the centurion. And I want you to take note of what they say as they present themselves in the centurion's case to Jesus. They say he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he has built us our synagogue. And then right after that, 
the text tells us that Jesus went with them. So this company of Jewish leaders, upon the request of the centurion, they go and they find Jesus and they kind of lay out the case before and they're like, Jesus, you gotta, you got to come with us now. There's a centurion in the city and he has a sick servant. And unless something is done, unless you do something on this person's behalf, they are going to die. So would you please come to this centurion's house and heal his servant? And by the way, he's worthy to have you do this because he loves us as a people. He loves the Jewish nation. He loves your chosen race. He even built us a place of worship. So Jesus, I mean, like, there's really no way around this. You've got to come to this guy's aid. You've got to do this on his behalf because of how much he has done for us and our people. And so Jesus went with them. Now let's walk through something right here. First and foremost, no one is worthy to have Jesus do anything for them. Nobody is worthy to have Jesus do anything on their behalf. No one is deserving to have Jesus do anything on their behalf. Jesus doesn't come to the earth because he owed us anything. So no one is worthy. Yes, this centurion was a good man. Quite obviously, he had a, a sterling reputation amongst the people for being someone who loved their particular nation. He even built them a place of worship. He says he built us our synagogue. And so this man having a lot of power and authority within the Roman oversight that was being exercised over the Jewish people got it passed through for them to have a synagogue built, a place for them to go and worship, which was a very big deal for them. And they appreciated that greatly. So there's no doubt whatsoever that this guy was a good man. He did some good things. He made some charitable contributions on behalf of the Jewish people, there's no doubt he was a good guy. But listen to me, nothing about our good acts or our deeds or our service makes us worthy of Christ's action. So many of the Jews approach Jesus in that way, though. And it's funny because these people that are approaching him now are going to be the same ones that are crucifying him later. And so many times we see this with the Jewish people. That's the, that's the way they approach Jesus. They approach Jesus in the way of, you serve me because I deserve to be served by you. Jesus did come to serve, but not in the reprehensible manner that the Jewish people expected him to. As if he owed them something, as if they deserved something from Christ, because of their good deeds or because of their works or because of their actions. So let me tell you, be careful in your request that thy will be done doesn't turn into my will be done. Because listen to me, the transition is subtle. It's very subtle the ways in which the Jews would approach Jesus and present their requests to him. On the outside, it would look real good. On the outside, it was always spun from the angle of, we're doing this in your honor. We're doing this for your name. We're doing this in defense of your kingdom. But underneath it all was an ulterior motive. Trying to get Jesus to bend to their will. Trying to get the word of God to bend to their life. 
trying to get God and his character to conform to them and their character. So be careful, guys, because the same can happen in our lives as well in very, very subtle ways. Our prayers can go from thy will be done to my will be done if we're not paying attention to where our hearts are at. And we can do it in real subtle ways. We can ask in real subtle ways that make it sound good, to make it sound as if we're not being selfish in our requests, to make it sound as if we only desire the best for God and His kingdom, to make it sound as if we only have the people around us best interest in mind, family members, friends, teammates. We only have their best interest in mind when in reality our hearts are in a different place and what we really desire is for us not to meet God where He's at, but for God to meet us where we're at. Be very, very, very careful that your requests don't turn into something like what the Jews were saying on behalf of this man. Because listen to me, we're, we're said, it tells us that Jesus went. Now, I think that's a key detail and one we need to look at closely as well because I want you to understand that Jesus doesn't move because of our merit. Jesus moves because of his mercy. So after the Jews come and they present plead the case of the centurion and say, this servant is sick, and unless you do something, something is going to happen. He's going to die. He's not going to make it. And Jesus went. And they're saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. He's a good guy. He, he, he lives a good moral life. He built us our synagogue. He's worthy. He's deserving to have you do this. Jesus did not move because of the merit of this man. He moved because he is merciful and compassionate to his creation. And he desired to do something special in this person's life, not because they were good, but because he is good. And the amazing thing is, is that somehow... This Roman centurion understood what the Jewish people didn't. And we see that because before Jesus ever got there, this man sends messengers once again to tell him, go back and look, look in verse 6. It says, Jesus went with him, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Now that sounds a little different from what the Jewish people had previously said. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. So this, this Roman centurion understood something about Christ that Jesus' own people had not even realized. Because before Jesus ever got there, he sends these messages to say, I'm not worthy to have you come here, but just speak the word. So this man understands he's anything but worthy or deserving of Jesus and his time. Just say the word. To know a little bit of history about how the Roman guard operated, centurions specifically were trained to be self-sufficient. So in other words, they were trained to not have to rely upon anyone else to get their job done, to solve problems for them to answer questions for them. They were trained to be self-sufficient in their job. 
So in other words, if they encountered an obstacle, if they encountered a struggle, if they encountered a difficulty, they just took care of it. They took action on their own. They didn't have to have much oversight over what they were doing because they were trained to just take care of business themselves. Now listen, it's very, very difficult to carry a deep faith with a strong self-sufficiency. So this guy and his response to Jesus is going against everything that he would have been trained to do. And on top of that, he's not even Jewish. This man is described by the Jews as being a pagan. He was a Gentile. In other words, he would have been an unbeliever. He is somebody who wouldn't have known anything about Jewish culture or heritage. He probably had very little knowledge of the fact that the world was even in need of a Messiah to come and save them from their sins. He didn't know Jewish law. He probably had a very, very brief understanding of it because he dealt with the Jewish people. But more than likely, he would have not known or realized even the significance of why Jesus was walking around on the face of the earth to begin with. I'm sure he'd probably heard stories of Christ. Word had probably gotten out of some of the things that Jesus was doing. But other than that, he'd never met Jesus before. He'd never seen any of the miracles. He'd never seen any of the previous healings. But he knew there was something about this man that was different than anybody else that had walked the face of the earth. And in that moment, when he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. I'm not deserving for you to give any of your time towards me. So I know, I know enough about you. And I have a great enough faith that if you will just speak the word, I believe my servant will be healed from wherever it is you are. And so in that moment, this man displays a remarkable showing of faith. Jesus, all I need is for you to speak. Now, I want to say this because I think it's meant for some of you. Maybe not all of you here tonight, but I do think it's meant for some of you. I want to ask you a question. When did Jesus' word stop being enough for you? This man says, just say the word. I don't need your presence to be in this place. I don't need your physical presence to be in. I don't need you to come underneath my roof and walk over to my servant and physically touch him. I don't need any other signs. I don't need any other proofs. I just need you to speak the word. When did Jesus' words stop being enough for you? Why do you need further confirmation? Why do you seek further affirmation from the people around you? Why do you need a, a physical? Why are you asking for a tangible sign before you'll be obedient to what you know He has spoken to you? Some of you here tonight, God has spoken some very specific things to. Whether that be to step out in faith unto salvation and have Him restore and redeem your heart and your soul, whether that be stepping into a calling on the mission field or into ministry, whether that be walking across the hallway to share Christ with a roommate, whether that be going into lab the next day and praying with your lab partner sitting beside, there are some specific things that God has placed on your hearts that for some reason, His Word is not longer uh, enough for you. You keep asking Him to, to reconfirm or reaffirm or send some other sign, send some other confirmation. Okay, God, I think I heard you. I'm pretty sure I heard you. 
But if you'll, just, if you'll say it again or if you'll show me something or if while I'm walking down the sidewalk today, if I will come across in between, in between Keller and Graves over by the fountain, if I can come across a dime that has year 1976 and is facing heads up, then I'll know it's you. And then I'll do it. Listen, guys, Christ's word is enough. When he speaks whatever it is that he speaks into our lives, when he just says the word, nothing else is needed. You don't need any other sign. You don't need any further confirmation. Listen, you don't need to make one more coffee date with a friend to try and seek affirmation from something that God has already given you confirmation in. Stop going to Starbucks. Just do whatever it is He's spoken into your life already. You don't need anything else when you have the Word of God, when it's already been spoken into your life. And we get to, we're starting to get to the cool stuff. Because it's at this point we're shown that Jesus marveled at this man. So after he sends the messengers, he says through his friends, hey, Jesus, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to be in trouble. So I'll tell you what. I believe you're so powerful. I've heard the accounts of who you are and what you've done in other places. If you will just speak the word, I have faith that my servant will be healed. And there's no need for you to even enter into my doorway. And when Jesus heard this message being portrayed through his friends, it says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Marveled at the faith this man had. It's crazy to think to me, that we can live in such a way, that we can have such a faith that would cause Jesus to marvel at us. Just imagine, we're talking about the God of the universe, the Savior of all humanity. And that as he's walking down the street, sees such a great demonstration of faith that it astonished him. It almost gives us the picture, and I'm not going to say this is the case because it's not, but it's almost as if it caught Jesus off guard. He was so shocked by the depth of this man's faith. He marveled. Jesus said, wow. Wow. I haven't found faith like this amongst my own people who have had all the prophets who have got all the text, who have been led out of Egyptian bondage and through the wilderness into a land of promise. I haven't found this kind of faith amongst my own people, so I've got to ask us all a question tonight. Does Jesus marvel at our faith? He asked a question one time while he was walking with his disciples and he had shared a story. Afterwards, he says, let me ask you all this. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? Faith is a big deal to Jesus. And he marveled at this man's faith. Do we have the kind of faith 
amongst us that Jesus would marvel at? Does Jesus marvel at our faith? But i got to ask another question. Do we marvel at Jesus' feet? Now I want to back up into Luke chapter 5 and show you something else. That's fixing to get really good. Luke chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus is teaching on the shoreline, and the crowds had become so thick and so heavy that he couldn't separate himself from them. And so in the midst of that, it was stifling the sound as they were pressing in upon him. So Jesus, seeing these two boats, gets the idea that I will get in one of these boats, we'll put out from the land, I can get some distance between me and these people so that they can continue to adequately hear what it is I desire to share with them. So it says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, who we know is Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing. So after Jesus is done teaching, he tells Peter, drop your nets back down. Let's catch some fish. Peter's like, well, Jesus, see, we tried that all night last night. And we didn't catch a thing. Look at what Peter says next. But at your word. I told you his word is enough. At your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished, or they marveled at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid from now on. You'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, followed him. After seeing what Jesus did, Peter fell down at Jesus' feet. And it says that he and the rest of the disciples looked at Jesus with astonishment. They marveled at him. They marveled at what they had just Witness take place. The fact that they had fished all night and hadn't caught a single thing. And Jesus said, I tell you what, boys, let down your nets. We're going to catch some fish over these next few moments. And they pulled up a haul so heavy that they had to call the other boat over to help them get it in because their nets were bursting at the seams. And after all that was said and done, they flopped the fish out on the deck. Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and looks at him with marvel as says, Who is this person? Who is this guy? Who, who has the power? Who has the authority to command the fish in the sea to swim into my nets? I've never seen or witnessed anything like this. And that's the true picture I want us to see in all of this. 
Not that it is possible that Jesus would marvel at us, but that we would marvel at Him. When's the last time? When's the last time you got caught up in a moment of marvel considering Jesus? When's the last time you just fat out on your knees before Him in complete and utter astonishment of the magnificence of who He is? Listen to me. Take it into consideration. We're talking about the one who created the universe, setting the planets with their moons in orbit. He hung the stars across the void of space. He scooped out the oceans and pushed up the mountains. He stores up the wind and gives it direction when he releases it. He tells the skies when to open and rain. Thunders clap at his command and lightning strikes from his fingers. He hangs clouds on nothing and instructs the seas to only come this far. He set the constellations in the night as a tapestry of beauty over the earth. In submission to His will, the sun will rise and set with each day. He spoke and plants and trees sprung up. Beasts populated the land. Fish swam the seas. Birds filled the skies. He gives seeds their growth and in maturity their fruit. By the fashion of His hands, He made each of us along with every other person to live. He describes that we are fearfully, wonderfully, intricately made as a masterpiece in His eyes. He grants breath. He knows each thought. He sees each heart. His strength and His might cannot be matched. His splendor and glory cannot be compared. He dwells in unapproachable light and in the depth of His greatness it cannot be comprehended. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is the lover of our souls. He is our defender, our fortress, our rock that will never be shaken. He has always been and He will always remain. His kingdom shall never end. He is the sustainer of all things created and the maker of all things new. That He would choose to be mindful of us is a marvel. That He would choose to heal anybody is a marvel. That He would take our sin is a marvel. That He would die to save is a marvel. That He would love and forgive is a marvel. His grace is a marvel. His mercy is a marvel. His patience is a marvel. His compassion is a marvel. His gentleness is a marvel. His indwelling is a marvel. Oh man and woman of God, when was the last time you got caught up in a moment of marvel over the absolute magnificence of who Jesus is? He's not just somebody. He's Christ. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And if He can find something in our lives that would cause Him to marvel, how much more are we to marvel at Him? Who He is. All that He has done. I want us to have a moment of marvel tonight. Or maybe for the first time in a long time, we just get caught up in the magnificence of Jesus.
Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.